Oh, wait, okay, God. okay. I don't know if this, this doesn't need to be in the podcast, but I'm definitely yes, going to link does. it in the show notes. But I just okay. need you to know that when you suggested this book and I heard the title, The Psychopath Test, I immediately thought of that scene in 30 Rock where Jenna goes into Pete's office and says that she is trying to see the EMT that showed up at their office earlier that day and she didn't get his number. And so he does like a quick like blurb and diagnoses her as a psychopath and yes. she's obviously a I, psychopath. I I thought of that too because I keep I've been thinking the last couple of weeks like what does he say? Like psychopath downgraded to extreme narcissist. Yeah. And then, like <laughs> at the end of the episode, because she wants to kill Kenneth in order to get some yes. guy's number. The EMT back. Oh my god! If I, because of my long history with EMTs and boys who I would kill to have their phone, <laughs> I understand where she's going. <laughs> books so that you don't have to unless you want to. My name is Kate Kiriaku and I'm Molly Fox and today we are talking about The Psychopath Test by John Ronson whom Kate has continued to refer to as Ron Johnson. (laughs) I am so sorry. Eventually we will do a book where I can actually remember the author's name and pronounce it correctly. (laughs) At least um, it's a white person whose name is getting fucked up instead of a person of color because white people deserve it. (laughs) It's not even a hard name. It just sounds to me like it should be Ron Johnson. Well, it's because Johnson is a last name and Ronson is not. Your name is not real. Please change it. Just kidding. I love John Ronson. I mean, I'm just going to say it really slowly this whole podcast. So if you need to speed it up to two times the speed just to hear me get through the author's name, you can feel free to do that. Yes. Um, so today, like I said, we're doing a psychopath test and Kate is going to start us out again with a brief summary of the book. And then we're going to go through some themes and quotes before we dive into a discussion about it. Yes, we have a slightly different format for this one. And in my head, I've been saying this terrible joke, new format, who this? (laughs) (laughs) New format, who this? So anyway, that's definitely what this podcast name is going to be. Or this episode uh... name. And the point is merely to provide more of what we promised and less of me yelling about being angry at evangelicals, which, although funny, is not exactly what we promised. Our tagline, we just want to make sure we're true to our tagline, which we also made up. So, yeah, that's right. But we did have a long executive discussion about whether or not to throw out the tagline so we could just keep yelling about our feelings or if we should actually try to do what we said we would, we have decided to go with the latter against my preferences. Well, I mean, stay tuned. <laughs> We're going to have another podcast coming out called Our Feelings. All in all Scream- caps. And- <laughs> Screaming and yelling. <laughs> and that one you'll also want to check out. No tagline. Yes. Just, you get, just- the, you get the gist. <laughs> 
Uh, so let's start with a summary. So this week, like Molly said, we're discussing John Ronson's <laughs> The Psychopath <laughs> Test, a journalistic investigation not into psychopaths, but into the industry that studies and profits from them, or as he refers to it, the madness industry. The uh, subtitle for this book is A Journey Through the Madness Industry. And in some, for some reason, I thought that it was a romp through the madness industry, which sounds better, right? It does. And I think we thought that because I referred to it like that at one point, And then I also wrote an Instagram post with that. And oh. it's editorializing at this point, but it is honestly a better title. So you're so. welcome. <laughs> Ron Johnson. <laughs> Maybe we'll just change his name and the title of his book. <laughs> well, if, if a Ron Johnson wants to write a book of a similar content, you can use the tag a romp through the madness industry. You're welcome. All right. Yes. So back to the summary. Um, psychopaths are estimated to make up about 1% of the world's population, but have attracted a very disproportionate fascination from psychologists, psychiatrists, and other mental health experts along with an endless string of studies, experiments, and purported remedies. But it's not just the medical profession that's chased this fascination. As told through the lens of journalist John Ronson, the psychopath <laughs> test explores what this obsession says about the media and those who consume it. So if you are a fan of true crime, buckle up. <laughs> John Ronson lets two questions guide this book. For the first half of the book, the question he explores is, are psychopaths overrepresented in leadership roles in our governments and businesses, yielding more power and thus more responsibility for harmful, chaotic systems than the average person? And then halfway through the book, he pivots and starts asking the question, what does it say about those of us chasing down diagnoses of those we don't know and, frankly, are not qualified to diagnose through amateur sleuthing and incomplete judgments? Using psychologist Bob Hare's psychopath test, which is a checklist of observable characteristics psychopaths share, Ronson begins the book by following a series of prisoners and business executives who have either been diagnosed as psychopaths or Ronson presumes to be psychopaths. In the latter part of the book, after visiting with one of these individuals and finding him unsatisfactorily psychopath enough, Ronson ingeniously pivots his book to exploring the second question, why is it so important for us to diagnose others in ways that help us categorize them? And ultimately, is this even that helpful to begin with? So I am going to turn it over to you, Molly, so that we can talk about our first set of key takeaways from the book. Yeah, so very well summarized, Kate, as always. And the first key takeaway I wrote down was simply madness is everywhere mm, that's and a good one we will get into the nuance of it but i think one of ronson's theses is that madness does exist everywhere but there's a spectrum and he's trying to decide like at which point on the spectrum do we start calling it madness or crazy or insane or lots of words that I use like way too much but for this time it's fine <laughs> um and like at what point do we diagnose and uh make it clinical or at like what point are you just someone who like in a part of his book has a weird anxiety reaction on an airplane like that is um I think one of the big questions he tries to answer in his whole handling of the quote-unquote madness industry 
Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, something similar, which was that while psychopaths are estimated to only make up 1% of the world, uh, the book is exploring whether, you know, our leaders are more likely to exhibit these characteristics. And is that why our world is so messed up? And I think that's a gross oversimplification, but it's also overlooking the nuance of what you've just said, which is that you don't have to be a clinical psychopath to exhibit narcissistic or sociopathic behaviors. Um, and it's more helpful to understand these qualities as a sliding scale rather than a, quote, type of person that you are yeah. or are not. Um, even though it's still totally possible to me that more people who are competitive and in these really uh, leadership positions are exhibiting those narcissistic qualities. I think that's totally possible. Yeah, I agree. And that was like my other main takeaway is that Um, the greatest influence on society is held by the few on the margins of the mental spectrum, or as he says, like the fringes. And that, like you said, it's an oversimplification to just say like all of the guys on wall street or all of politicians are psychopaths. And that's why, and that's how they're influencing society. But if you think of the influence that someone like I, who is not diagnosable as a psychopath, FYI. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is what I aspire to be. So stay tuned. Um, But like the influence a a quote unquote normal person, an average person would have on society versus the influence that a serial killer has on society. The one is much greater and obviously much more negative. But I think one of the points he not necessarily makes but tries to investigate is how much influence do psychopaths have and is it true that they have the most ability to like affect the whims of society Mm -hmm. i tend to lean towards yes that like people with the most extreme mental states are the ones who make the most extreme influences on society um even if you think of like uh well you can think of someone like donald trump I don't, I don't, I wouldn't presume to say that you could diagnose him as a psychopath. That, that's not fair to say, but he definitely has an extreme narcissism and we have seen the way that's influenced our country over the last four years and will continue Mm -hmm. to forever. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Those were my, my two big takeaways that I have been kind of mulling over is that madness is everywhere, but what do we define as madness and the people on the fringes of society, the most extreme mental states is what I mean by fringes of society are the ones who have the greatest influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think those are really great, concise ways to summarize a lot of what he's getting at in this book. Um, My other takeaways were that humans enjoy categorizing things because it helps our chaotic world feel more ordered And Mm. it helps our brains process the world without becoming completely overwhelmed by it. And sometimes those categories are helpful. Sometimes they're hurtful. And identifying patterns isn't necessarily a negative thing until you slot everything into a category without acknowledging the nuance of each individual situation. So obviously it can be really helpful for you to feel like you have a quote unquote real diagnosis because then you can learn from other people who are in the same situation. You can kind of find a community there. You know that you're not alone. Um, But at the same time, 
if we are just going around categorizing everybody and slotting them into very limiting categories, you know, I think those are not super helpful. Uh, and yeah. Can often tell you a narrative about yourself that you don't want to hear or that you then have to find a way to fight your way out of later on in life, especially if we're talking about younger diagnosis. Yeah. Or is that self-fulfilling prophecy thing where, okay, hold on. Self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know what is wrong with my brain that I have to say things like process, but someone <laughs> pointed it out to me the other day and he was like, well, I only noticed because you said process and then you said process in the same sentence. And I was like, probably the most embarrassed I've been in a long time. I love it because it's like prophecy? the one time. What am I talking? <laughs> about what's well, like the one time you use like a british like oh. pronunciation of an english word and all of your other words are midwestern english <laughs> it is horrible um okay it is the self-fulfilling prophecy thing where if you are said to be bipolar or psychopathic or something at a very young age whether you are or not your life is going to be different and the way you consider and conceive of yourself is different and so you will probably have outcomes that you wouldn't have had otherwise yeah um something that you said though like the whole categorizing thing uh the main person in this book that is discussed as having created a category system is bob Hare, who wrote the psychopath test that's it's an actual test that you can use to oh i'm so sorry you already fucking explained all of this what am i doing <laughs> no, Holy that's shit. So, that's really funny. <laughs> i have never once picked up a piece of information from listening to it once so i okay. feel like it's totally fine to just be like uh, as a reminder bob Hare is yes whatever Okay. Bob Hare is the person who wrote the psychopath test, which is a test that you can use to uh, categorize and diagnose, quote unquote, a psychopath. There's lots of things on it from antisocialness to harming animals while you were a child. <clears throat> if you're into true crime, they will be things that are very familiar. Like the trifecta is wetting the bed, uh, harming animals, and brain injury as a child. Often, like, with a serial killer, you'll find out that they had those three things in their history. So Okay, but, like, didn't most people? That sounds like not, like, I mean, except for the harming wet, wet the animals thing. Like, the other two sound pretty frequent, to be honest. Yeah, it's, the, the bedwetting is not, like, a one-off. It's, like, a over years and years and years, this person consistently wet the bed. I have also heard that that happens to people who are younger and experience some sort of trauma. Uh, yes. And I feel that the trauma is probably more indicative of your psychopathy tendencies than the wetting the bed. Yeah, the wetting the bed is actually a sign of, I think it's usually sexual abuse. Mm. So, yes, you could absolutely argue that really what's happening is that they have head injuries, abuse of some kind, and then they're harming animals, which, again, is another sign yeah. of, like, that seems abuse. like a better checklist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, back to Bob Hare. He has this checklist and, and some of the things I just mentioned are a part of it. And if a person you're interviewing has all these characteristics, then you can diagnose them as a psychopath, supposedly. And I'm actually, I kind of lean more towards Bob Hare's way of thinking in he in the book is presented as being very rigid as when it comes to like psychopathy. And if someone is 
is meeting those standards on his checklist, then he feels that that person should be institutionalized or jailed because inevitably they will cause harm. And while I don't agree with that entirely, that they will inevitably cause someone like physical harm, I do think that psychopathy is, it's unavoidably dangerous. If you do not have the ability to empathize with other human beings, ultimately you are much more dangerous than the average human being. Yeah, and a part of what he brings up in that argument is that psychopaths are most likely to reoffend because it is an actual physical inability to empathize with others. And he gets yeah. into it just a little bit in the book, not a ton, but he gets into the kind of neuroscience behind it, which is that our emotions and our impulses are controlled by our amygdala, which is in the front of our brain. Uh, if you have a brain injury, specifically a traumatic one, that mm -hmm. affects your ability to uh, control your impulses and control your emotions. And I will link this again in the show notes, but I was listening to a different podcast. Uh, it was a Ezra Klein show, and in it they were interviewing a neuroscientist who had mentioned that one third of inmates on death row have damage to their amygdala, which I think is a pretty significant portion, obviously. And I think when we think about people who have a lot of domestic abuse, for example, um, in like the NFL or something like that, mm, yeah, that's a lot of brain injuries, especially when you're thinking about CTE. So I think we as a society have probably not done enough research on that, but I would imagine mm -hmm. that the damage to the amygdala has a lot more to do with people's inability to uh, control their emotions and impulses than we know at this point. Yeah, agreed. And that's one of the points that Bob Hare is making with his work is that psychopathy it's well he is actually arguing that it's how you're born so it wouldn't be necessarily an injury it's like you're you're born with a, a slightly different kind of brain than another person but his argument is that it's not something you can reverse or repair with medication or therapy or something no matter what you do a psychopath will not be able to develop empathy and i think the thing that bob harry isn't very good at doing is is understanding the nuance of psychopathy and that like just because someone is psychopathic doesn't mean that they are going to murder someone or attack someone it, it it is true that like they might be attracted to something with high risks like wall street or business where they're like climbing the ladder really quickly so i think bob hair is a little bit quick to be like they should be jailed or whatever <laughs> yeah but um i think there's lots of ways that psychopathy presents itself and everyone has a little bit of it i i was just talking to a friend actually on friday he's a friend of mine from grad school and we were talking about when we first met and he remembers us meeting very vividly and i don't remember it as vividly which i have a very good memory so it's kind of surprising to me that i don't remember it um but he he remembers that we bonded instantly over the town that our grad school is in and how much we disliked it. And it is true that I disliked it, but I told him when we were talking that like, 
the reason I don't remember that is because I was doing a thing that I used to do a lot more, which was I would mirror whatever a person I was with wanted me to do. I would be able to like read what they wanted. This person wants me to like shit on this town with them and I would (laughs) give them what they were looking for. And so my friend felt this like instant connection with me because I was being psychopathic and like (laughs) giving them what they wanted in order for them to like me. And I don't remember it as well because I didn't have the same kind of connection. And I have since like built a very strong connection with this person and I love him dearly. But <laughs> my the only reason I tell this story is because it illustrates the way we all at one point or another do something that is technically psychopathic. Yeah, absolutely. I think every human has narcissistic tendencies, which is a huge part of psychopathy. Again, you mentioned it. Uh, as being a spectrum, right? So we're all on the spectrum. It just, we may be at different places. And thankfully, we are not all in a place where we can't empathize with one another because that would have a lot of chaos in the world. But at the same time, we can't all be people who can only empathize with people because empathizing too much can become debilitating in a lot of ways because you are unable to not take on the emotions and the problems and the feelings of the people who are either around you in the room or just out in the world. And so, you know, it's obviously like most things in life, better to have a balance, but we can't always control what we feel. Yeah. And I think one of the points that Ronson tries to make is that an average person, depending on the day or the way they answer a certain question, could technically score high enough on the quote-unquote psychopath test to be considered a psychopath, even if they're never going to cause harm to society or themselves or someone else. Which is wild because, I mean, that might not be somebody who you want to spend your time with because they're very self-obsessed, but that doesn't make them necessarily dangerous to society and it doesn't mean that they're best served by being locked in an institution or locked in jail so right right yeah uh so i i think we covered all of my main takeaways i do want to say one short thing which isn't really a takeaway it's more playing off of something that you already said uh which is that this is a really accessible read which i always appreciate in nonfiction, and John Ronson throughout the book is very open about what he is or is not qualified to talk about and his own personal mental health challenges with anxiety, which I think Mm -hmm. touches on that we're all a little bit crazy. We're all a little bit supposedly mad. And I really appreciated his self-reflectiveness as always, because had this book been in someone else's hands, it would not have been good. But I should have known from his previous work that I've come across that I was safe and I could trust being in his hands because he's a phenomenal journalist. He's really self-reflective. He's very empathetic. And I just really appreciate that approach when it comes to investigating a world of which you're not really a part, you know? Yeah. And he's also funny. Yes. There's nothing better than, or the best way to be self-reflective is to also be humorous about it because Mm -hmm. nothing is funnier than just like the reality of how fucked up we are sometimes. All the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that like all of us share those characteristics of just, it's why memes are a thing. Yeah. Because everyone sees it and they're like, "Uh I do that, which is also a (laughs) meme, by the way. (laughs) 
<laughs> Everything's a meme. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, yeah, I love the way he approaches it with humor. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism, I think, for most people yeah. who have a great sense of humor. It's, you know, yes. getting through hard things. Which, actually, mm-hmm. so we both pulled a couple of quotes from the book that we want to talk about. And what you just said uh, is perfectly matched with the first quote that I wanted to pull. In the second chapter, John Ronson is looking through the DSM-5, which is a textbook published by the American Psychiatric Association, and it has every known clinical uh, diagnosis in it, and then some, (laughs) in the appendix and in the index, as he mentions. Um, The ones that don't make it into the actual book make it into the index. Those are ones that have not been certified or agreed upon by enough psychiatrists uh, to be included. But he is flipping through this manual, and the quote says, I close the manual. I wonder if I've got any of the 374 mental disorders, I thought. I opened the manual again, and I instantly diagnosed myself with 12 different ones. (laughs) And I just love that because that is all of us, yes. <laughs> because yeah. I don't know who has ever gotten onto WebMD and not diagnosed themselves with both cancer and appendicitis <laughs> when they really just had a common cold. <laughs> but yes, that is a brain just, tumor is a classic. Right, exactly. And it's just so common and so human. And I just really loved that aspect of his writing. Yes. The first quote I pulled was very similar to that. It's... Uh, it's in chapter eight and it's on page 185 of the version of the book I have. So good luck making that work for you. Um, and it says, this podcast isn't about you. <laughs> yeah. You say I am the main character. Um, <laughs> he's talking about Bob Harris checklist. And he says, I now felt that the checklist was a powerful and intoxicating weapon that was capable of inflicting terrible damage if placed in the wrong hands. I was beginning to suspect that my hands might be the wrong hands. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because, you know, you can totally imagine another journalist taking up the subject and not being self-reflective and not investigating their own role in the madness industry and their own role in perpetuating these categories that could be dangerous to people. And yeah. that would just fall flat completely. But because yes. he is being self-reflective, because he's willing to say, oh, oh, there we go. I'm a part of this, actually. I just did it. I just caught myself doing it. Um, yeah. Then that makes yeah. it so great. Well, actually, that actually... Should I say actually one more time? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, actually. <laughs> that brings me to my ninth point. <laughs> Which is, okay, Uh, the second quote I pulled is, he's talking about, um, I think this is in chapter nine, and he's been going on this deep dive about essentially reality TV and how that is a version of the madness industry. We want just crazy enough to be interesting, but not so crazy that it's depressing. And again, I'm using crazy in a colloquial way. It's like when you're watching The Bachelor or something, like we do want the drama, but I have experienced, actually this last season is a good example of it. It's not fun drama anymore. It's like watching people genuinely attack each other in a way that it it is too close to home of society of like, 
oh my god, you all have internalized misogyny so badly that you're calling each other whores. Like, this is so upsetting to watch. And so I think there are people who probably enjoy that. But for me, that's taking a turn into quote-unquote craziness that is too painful to watch. It's not mm -hmm. funny anymore. And Ronson does a good job of, of asking a question like, what's too far? And how do we decide that? Ronson makes a good point about the way we all instinctively know when something is funny crazy or not funny crazy, which is where I wrote down the 30 Rock quote. I'm doing cartwheels in the Zoom meeting. You can't see me, but I'm so excited that this came full circle. <laughs> because Liz Lemon is talking to her boyfriend. She's having like an emotional breakdown of some kind and she's convinced he's going to leave her. And he, or wait, yeah. no, he thinks she's going to leave him, right? Whatever. I don't know. Something. I There's... confuse that so much. <laughs> They're having, like, a crisis about their relationship, and he says, I know that you're not gonna bail on me because you're crazy. Like, you're... Oh, my God. No, no, no. He, says, he says... <laughs> he says, there are three types of people who are single yes. over 40. Bailers, yes. crazies, and... What's the last one? Um... Oh, shit. I don't remember. It's Uggos. Uggos. Oh, my God. How did I remember that? That's the funniest part. He's like, Baylor's Uggos and crazies. And you're ha-ha crazy, not oh, boy, crazy. <laughs> wow. Which is where I was trying to get a fucking hour ago. The the we all know what is ha ha crazy and what's oh boy crazy. <laughs> yeah, and I think like he explores that question open endedly because there's not really an answer that you can point to and say, here's the line. If you cross it, yeah. we're gonna institutionalize you and decide as a society to shun you because you're too crazy versus like right. oh you're high functioning and seem not super crazy so we're just gonna let it slide as a society and you can be seen as normal whatever that even means right or which is the point that i was getting to eventually with his quote is that we use it for entertainment mm -hmm. so his um quote on that is on page 211 and again the version of the book i'm using so <laughs> useless to you and it says david shaler's tragedy is that his madness has spiraled into something too outlandish too out of the ballpark and consequently useless we don't want obvious exploitation we want smoke and mirrors exploitation mm, yeah so that is his argument about something like reality tv or something you'd see on the news the moment it's clear that this person couldn't consent or is beyond um, understanding their own mental health, it's not enjoyable entertainment anymore. It feels like putting someone on TV and exploiting them, which is exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, I think it transitions for a lot of people from being funny to being pitiful. And yeah. we immediately feel guilty about that, even though it's been exploited the entire time when it comes to yeah. something like reality TV. And David Shaler, as a reference, he is a conspiracy theorist. And I think we see that a lot now that news organizations especially really love to delve into the stories of conspiracy theorists, mm -hmm. but they don't enjoy delving into how much of their life they've had to give up in order to chase this conspiracy theory. 
you don't really hear yeah. about the consequences of chasing conspiracy theories because it's really painful for people to hear. It's not fun. It's you lose your interest, right? Because it's too pitiful and it makes you look away. You feel shameful. And so again, yeah. it's sad because ultimately it's still all about the person who's consuming this rather than the person mm-hmm. who is being exploited. But nonetheless, it is, I think something that comes up a lot. Yeah. And the thing I said earlier about like the bachelor as an example, I use the women like calling each other whores as like why it's not fun to watch anymore. But that misses the point that the reason it isn't fun is because the women on that show are being exploited by the producers of that show. Mm-hmm. They are they're given too much to drink. They're encouraged to say shitty things to each other. They're kept up. They're isolated from all of society and they're kept up weird hours. Like you can read about the things that the producers do to actively make their brains stop functioning well. And then they capture these crazy fights that they have, which make the women look like they're lunatics and that they're coming unhinged. When in reality, all of us would be if we were in that situation. And the only thing we had to think about was one guy who a bunch of other women were competing with you for. So yeah. that that's the reason it isn't as fun to watch anymore because the exploitation has become so obvious that it's yeah. no longer like, oh, these women are goofballs. It, it feels gross. Yeah. Absolutely. Or maybe I'm just becoming a better person. Honestly, that's probably it. <laughs> it's like probably about my own growth. Like I wouldn't put it past me. I'm pretty great. <laughs> I have leveled up in terms of my higher self. It is true. um I want to pull my second quote which is related to misdiagnosing people it is a conversation between John Ronson and Bob Hare where they're sitting at a bar and uh, in the book, he writes, in the executive bar, Bob Hare continued, he told me of an alarming world of globetrotting experts, forensic psychologists, criminal profilers, traveling the planet armed with nothing much more than a certificate of attendance, just like the one I had. These people might have influence inside parole hearings, death penalty hearings, serial killer incident rooms, and on and on. I think he saw his checklist as something pure, innocent as only science can be. But the humans who administered it as masses of weird prejudices and crazy predispositions. So I pulled that quote. It's pretty similar to the one that you just read. But Mm -hmm. one thing I wanted to point out is that people can be misdiagnosed as things. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times people who are in the sciences tend to believe that science is infallible in a way and that it is empirical data. But the truth is that we're still human beings that are interpreting that data and a lot of times human beings that's collecting that data and we get to decide what data even means in that context. And so the reason why we have a hypothesis and continue to have people prove it right or wrong is because we don't always get it right the first time. Often we don't. Mm -hmm. And it's a continual process of learning, but Unfortunately, in the meantime, while we're trying to figure out what exactly we're doing and talking about and how we can diagnose people, Mm -hmm. we also sometimes diagnose people incorrectly or give them medications that are not super helpful or um, tell them things that we thought at the time might be something that would make their lives better, but ended up making their lives worse. 
Yeah, and if you think about it in terms of a continuum of someone's life, like maybe someone at 12 was misdiagnosed with bipolar or depression or something like that, or psychopathy, you know, like a narcissistic personality thing. And later they do commit a crime or they're, excuse me, um, accused of committing a crime and they're on trial. Those things can be brought in as evidence against the person's character that like, well, they are, they have a history of mental health problems. And it's like, those things could have been misdiagnosed. Like we are trusting the science, but in reality it's fairly subjective. And there's a lot of examples of how um, children are misdiagnosed with things like ADD or bipolar disorder or whatever. And that those are things that have effects on your life. Like we said earlier about like the self-fulfilling prophecy thing, but also something like if you were convicted of a crime or accused of one that has effects on parole hearings and the jury deciding whether or not you're quote unquote crazy. And that's all it takes. It's just yeah. like those people deciding whether or not you are what the lawyer, I was like, who, who's the character I'm trying to say right now? <laughs> judge? The judge? <laughs> I've judge never Judy? been inside a courtroom. Uh, yeah. So it, it is very subjective, even though we want to pretend like it's very objective. Yeah. I think it's more comfortable to pretend that things are objective because it makes us feel like there's some sort of control over the situation. But yeah. The truth is that there's very little that we do control, which is a really hard yes. truth. And it's not always fun to hear or to think about or to deal with on a daily basis and yes that's yeah yeah I actually wrote something very similar down which is that I really am attracted to Bob Hare's checklist because I would love for it to be that simple yeah and I am kind of very into diagnosing people um, I love to throw things around like this person has narcissistic personality disorder for no goddamn oh, reason. Girl, my mom, <sighs> she will probably listen to this episode, but my, <laughs> because she's our only listener right now. Um, but Thanks. my mom went around and diagnosed every single person she ever met with Asperger's once she figured out what it was. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, it does not apply. Stop diagnosing people that you spent two minutes with at the grocery awesome. with this disease. Like, to be fair to my mom, I'm pretty sure my grandpa did have it. <laughs> so, like, yeah. maybe yes. it's not as um, wild that she went around doing that as I thought. But <laughs> she also diagnosed plenty of people she did not know. So Yes, yes. I love I love to throw a good, like, narcissist around. That's always a fun one. And it's, like, it basically, un you can't unprove it. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's hilarious. But then I also love to talk about myself being a narcissist. However, I make this joke all the time. I try it with men. It never works. I am still single. <laughs> I say, like, something, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'm a narcissist. And then I follow it up with, no, obviously I'm not. Narcissists aren't self-aware enough to joke about themselves. Which is... <laughs> obviously true. hilarious <laughs> and also true <laughs> i will report back if slash when it works <laughs> when it lands that's the one <laughs> spoiler alert it won't <laughs> oh my goodness um all right so with our new format in addition to our key takeaways and our quotes that we wanted to pull we also were challenging each other to think of one lingering question we still had for the book 
Mine is not a very fun question, but I can pose it anyway, which is just, I wonder how much has changed in psychology and specifically in the DSM-5 between the time this book was written in 2011, I believe, to now, because the sciences are things that continue, continually change. So, yeah. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I am curious now. Even if you just consider something like comparing how far we've come between when gay marriage was legalized in this country, which I believe was like 2015, to now, um, 10, like five years before that, I know that being gay wasn't a mental disorder in the DSM at that point but it was and so yeah in 10 years we've certainly come a long way in what we as a society consider to be mentally unstable it's interesting that you bring up that uh that note because i knew that homosexuality had previously been diagnosed as a mental disorder Mm -hmm. but i did not know how recently it was still diagnosed like I don't know why but in my mind I was like that was like 1920 and ended in 1920 (laughs) and I was like girl no (laughs) it did not yeah it was like definitely I think after the 60s yeah actually I so look it up now yeah um while you do that I will say what my lingering question was, which is, how would you define a psychopath? Yes, this is such a good question and way better than my unanswerable one. <laughs> Although this is actually kind of unanswerable to me as it well. It is. Um, so I think one of the reasons I enjoyed this book is because he does not try to answer it for you. Yeah. He definitely leaves it open-ended. Uh, the last sentence in the book is good luck. <laughs> So that tells you something. Um, But I have understood psychopaths as being people who cannot empathize with other people, whether it's from a brain injury or from being born with a brain that does not allow them to do so. Mm -hmm. And sociopaths as being people who experience some sort of trauma and therefore have a harder time empathizing with people, but still Mm -hmm. have the physical capability to do so. Then further down on the sliding scale would be narcissism, which would be people who exhibit uh, tendencies of not empathizing with people, even though they know what empathy is and they do have the ability to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But they are more preoccupied with their own perceptions of reality Mm -hmm. and their own uh, grandiose behavior, I suppose. Yeah, I think one of the differences between like a narcissist and someone with a, a further along antisocial personality disorder like psychopathy is narcissists are... much more anxious in how other people are perceiving them they that having anxiety in that way means that you have some kind of empathy because you are able to like imagine the way someone else is feeling about you Mm, yeah it's it's like but it's tied back to your own experience Mm -hmm. versus um someone who is truly psychopathic who does not understand empathy and cannot feel it 
doesn't really give a shit what you think about them because it would never occur to them to imagine your your feelings. Yeah, and one of the checklist items was exhibiting a grandiose idea of the self, which makes sense if the only person that you can conceive of having a perception of is yourself, then it's like your perception of yourself is going to be really, really important. And you are going to think that you're the protagonist in every story because you can't imagine anybody else being the protagonist in another story. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Uh, I agree with that kind of the way you broke it down. I, I think with, within the psychological community, there is disagreement. So that's part of the reason Mm -hmm. Ronson leaves it open-ended is because you can ask five different psychologists and they will say different things about what defines a psychopath versus, versus a sociopath. And many people use them interchangeably now. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that is, is because when it comes down to it, their behaviors are essentially the same. Mm-hmm. You, If you like Google it, you'll find articles. There's one that I've looked at a million times that has like a picture of the Joker. And they tried <laughs> it to... to to claim that like a sociopath and a psychopath behave differently. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think it comes down to how they have become that way. Mm -hmm. And a sociopath society is quote unquote made versus a psychopath who is born. Mm -hmm. And that is the best definition that I have found that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that tracks because again, their behaviors are often the same. Yeah. And it's more about how they got to be the way that they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good definition. And I like the idea of using the kind of root of socio, of understanding that it's Mm -hmm. in relation to what society has done to them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which sounds really funny, kind of, because society does a shitload of stuff to all of us, so... Yes, um, totally. I don't know that that applies to everyone, I guess, but... I think in my own, like, imagination, though, I use the term, I use both of these terms lots of times because I like to speak colorfully and, and describe people that I dislike who did something <laughs> wild as Like, this. stole your sandwich in the lunchroom. <laughs> yes. What a psychopath. I tend to say psychopath when they have done some kind of violent physical act. Mm-hmm. And I tend to use sociopath when they, someone has been incredibly cunning and emotionally manipulative. Ooh. Which is, like, that is not... Those are not definitions of any kind, but just so you know, when I use those terms, if I'm calling someone a sociopath, it's because I think that they're like, especially like emotionally manipulative and evil versus psychopath who I consider someone who'd like blow up a building. I'm like, oh my God, that's psychopath. Um, The Joker is both, I feel like, but also I would like to say that if we can do our own podcast, why can't we just write our own dictionary? Who's going to stop us? We can do whatever we want. (laughs) It'll just be like five words and then I'll get bored and be like, next Be like, later that day, Kate was diagnosed as a psychopath herself. We can do whatever we want. (laughs) (laughs) Please excuse me. I've been inside too long and I only talk to my dog. Uh, All right. So (laughs) I would rate this book a three and a half out of five stars. It was not like the most spectacular book I've ever read, but it was super enjoyable. I did like the author, obviously. And Mm -hmm. I, I downgraded it from a four to a three and a half because I don't know how much this book will stick with me after I'm done reading it, which is kind of my, um, 
what am I trying to say? The way that I rate uh, between yeah. like a three or four stars. Oh, I, I love it. So what is your rating? Um, I used stars this time also. However, <laughs> they are a different kind of star than yours. I decided to go with Michelin stars. Yes. I felt that that was uselessly appropriate. So <laughs> I picked three Michelin stars. <laughs> yes. It is delicious. This book is innovative and delicious. Yes. Yes. Highly consumable, very easy to read and digest. Um, but again, like you said, will the protein of it hold me over for months? I don't think so. And in fact, I know that to be the case because I read this a year ago and I had to like revisit it and like remind myself of it. And I was actually, when I revisited it, I was like, oh, this is funnier than I remembered. Yeah. So sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, I I changed your name and the title of your book and I didn't remember that you were funny. So I said it was like, meh. No, I really enjoy the book. I think the reason it doesn't stick with me as much is because I wanted I think a more technical discussion of what yeah. psychopathy is and what sociopathy is and to, to have a more, uh, he doesn't really attempt to no. dig into those mm-hmm. definitions, which is totally fair. He's doing a different thing, but that's what I wanted when I picked this book up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the title may cause a lot of people to feel that way. Yes, which I'm going to segue into our next thing, because, um, which is a pop culture reference of some kind that is, like, could go with this book. What am I trying to say? We would like like to recommend, yeah, we would like (laughs) to recommend one pop culture thing that you can chase after if you are interested in the themes of this book, but are not interested in reading nonfiction books. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm going to ruin that immediately by recommending another nonfiction book. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> um, first, I'm going to recommend the television show Mindhunter. Because oh, if yes. you wanted to read this book as I did to learn more about what makes a psychopath, watching a show about an FBI profiling unit and how it got started, like the FBI profiling unit, is really satisfying. But if you want a book that does more of teaching you how to spot those kinds of dangers in people, then I would recommend uh, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. He is a, an ex-FBI agent. or Not ex, like he was fired, like he retired. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think FBI profiler was essentially what he did. Ooh, um, although I didn't, I, I just am saying that off the top of my head. Um but his work is very similar to that, even if he wasn't technically a profiler. And he wrote a book about how to learn to trust your instincts. So when you're in a situation and something goes wrong, a lot of times people will look back on it and be like, I knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. But they like kept going along with it anyway, or they didn't stop or whatever. And he writes this book to teach you like those red flags you have those senses for a reason and and to spot what is actually happening in around you and in people's behavior that is giving you that bad feeling that you dismiss so mm, yeah that is essentially what i wanted out of a book mm-hmm. and uh the, this was the, something different. Like, <laughs> yeah it was something different and what it was was good but if you're looking for what i had originally wanted those two things are great you'll be happier with both of those i can definitely yeah. see that I did not watch all of Mindhunter, but I did 
walk in and out of the room while my husband watched it. So I feel like I, I got the joke. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, my suggestions were going to be uh, John Ronson's other material in podcast mm. form. So he has two other podcast series, one The Butterfly Effect and the other The Last Days of August, both of which investigate the porn industry. And because he's British, he is the podcast host and his pronunciation of porn is like really funny to me so process it's it's <laughs> process um anyway they're both incredible he's a great journalist and i enjoyed those a lot and then my other suggestion was for the actual themes of the book uh of course one flew over a cuckoo's nest which is mm. dealing with a lot of these same themes but also pointing the finger directly at institutions which is what i feel like John Ronson was doing uh, with his thesis of this book and not mm-hmm. necessarily shining the light on people who are being diagnosed with the mental illness, but the people who are diagnosing them. Yeah. I think for someone who uh, doesn't actually make a clear conclusion, <laughs> <laughs> he has done a very good job of writing a whole entire book. <laughs> good job, John. <laughs> or should I say Ron? <laughs> Well, and I think that's like what being a journalist is like, he doesn't have to produce a argued thesis and be like, see, I proved something like he was just investigating. And this is what he discovered through his investigation. Yeah. So it's okay that it doesn't. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say anyone who's done any sort of research, whether that was on a micro level, i.e. us in graduate school or on a macro level. You know that sometimes when you ask the question, you end up in an unexpected position with an answer you didn't expect. So um, I appreciate that about any journalist, that they're willing to open the door and just see what comes in rather than going out there with a thesis they're trying to prove and then ending up with a bunch of material that actually proves them wrong. (laughs) Yeah, or that like is inaccurate because they couldn't get past their own blind spots in their investigations. Yeah. So... Yeah, very good point. Awesome. Well, next time we are talking about You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories of Racism by Amber Ruffin and her sister, Lacey Lamar. And I am so excited. I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk about this book. I read it in like two days because we had a snowstorm and it was the only piece of light in (laughs) my world at that time. And (laughs) I was like, oh this lovely very yellow book that feels like sunshine i'm gonna read it Mm -hmm. which sounds ridiculous because it's about racism and there's a lot of it that is not sunshine right i want to make that very clear but amber ruffin is just a light in the world and so that's how i felt about hearing from her yeah and it comes through in the writing she is very she's bubbly in it even though yeah like you said there's heaviness to it of course because it's about racism and she's just so funny. I love yes. her so much. She is. <laughs> and she's a style icon. I don't know if you have oh, seen her suits, yes. but man, they are so good. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well put together. Yeah. Join us next time when we try to spend more time talking about a book and less time yelling about our feelings. <laughs> We didn't yell about our feelings at all this time. (laughs) Well, damn it. Should I get it in at the end? I have so many feelings. Um, Let's end in there. Let's just stop. (laughs) 